I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. In this podcast, I'd like to highlight some of the content from the March edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover relates to rational investigations in irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is a functional gastrointestinal disorder with an estimated prevalence of around 10%. The approach to investigation is variable and influenced by the symptom severity, clinician experience and the clinical setting, but based around the principle of careful clinical assessment, early diagnosis and limiting to necessary and relevant tests. In this issue, Christopher Black and Alexander Ford summarise the evidence base and provide practical guidance. Diagnostic criteria should be present as per the Rome criteria, Routine bloods are acceptable but have a low diagnostic yield. Celiac testing is reasonable. Fecal calprotectin should be considered, especially if there's diarrhoea, proceeding to colonoscopy if the test is positive. More intensive investigations should be reserved for specific cases and dependent on the history, examination and red flags if present. Colonoscopy should be considered in any patient with alarm features for colorectal cancer or if microscopic colitis is suspected, even if the calprotectin is normal. If bile acid diarrhea is suspected, then a 23 seslo 25 homotocolic acid, that's a SECAT scan, should be considered. Breath testing and tests for small intestinal ope Breath testing and testing for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth are not helpful and a trial of treatment probably the more effective test. In summary, therefore, an early positive diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome and limiting the need for clinical investigation is advocated. This creates the opportunity for initiation of early symptom-specific treatment. This is a really good article to read through. It's Editor's Choice this month please refer directly to the website for the content. The second article I'd like to cover relates to nutrition in liver disease. This is a really important topic. Key to the management of liver disease, that's from compensated cirrhosis through to liver failure, is the early recognition and treatment of malnutrition, particularly when this is associated with sarcopenia, that's reduction in muscle function and strength. Malnutrition is generally associated with undernutrition, although does include overnutrition, as seen in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, when sarcopenia can also be present and the term sarcopenic obesity is increasingly used. In this issue, Daliwal and colleagues use a case-based approach and evidence-based guidance to discuss the nutritional management of compensated cirrhosis and decompensated cirrhosis during the acute and chronic phase. Key messages include protection of muscle mass, minimizing fasting, protein targets, and functional assessment and intervention, with the overall strategy being to use it or lose it. The third article I'd like to cover relates to the ocular manifestations of gastrointestinal disease. It's really interesting. So ocular manifestations of gastrointestinal disease can present as an emergency. This is a curriculum-based review 
by Iman and Habubi, who discuss the ocular manifestations of gut disease, including epidemiology, detailed description of the clinical features, including useful images, treatment and complications. In inflammatory bowel disease, this includes episcleritis, scleritis nuveitis, and cataract secondary to steroids. Episcleritis, which is the most common, mirrors disease activity and improves with disease control. Less common are scleritis, including posterior scleritis, which can result in visual loss and may be complicated by retinal detachment or optic neuritis, and uveitis, which require prompt recognition and treatment. There are multiple other conditions discussed, which include keratoconjunctivitis sicca, that's dry eye, optic dysdrusen seen in Allergil syndrome, Kaiser Fleischer rings seen in Wilson's disease, xanthelasma seen in primary bilisterosis, chronic liver disease, and hyperlipidemia. The authors also discussed the ophthalmological manifestations of vitamin A deficiency, including xerophthalmia, night blindness, betote spots, keratitis, and keratomalacia. Vitamin A deficiency is interesting. There are multiple gastrointestinal causes. Treatment is with vitamin A and treatment of the underlying cause, although the prognosis is variable and reflects the underlying disease state and the severity of the deficiency. The article is essential reading for trainees and actually a very useful and practical update for clinicians in practice. The fourth article I'd like to highlight relates to paediatric parental nutrition and discusses some of the current issues. Parental nutrition has transformed the prognosis of infants and children with intestinal failure with significant advances in the field over the last 10 to 15 years. In this issue, Eleanor Cernot and John Puntis discuss the principles and practice and summarise recent guidance from the European Society of Paediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition and the European Society for Clinical Nutrition and Metabolism. There are very useful sections on the different components, energy, amino acids, lipid, carbohydrate, fluid and electrolytes, micronutrients and vitamins. The article discusses energy requirements and when to start PN, which can potentially be delayed for up to a week in a critically ill child, avoidance of soybean emulsions and use of composite emulsions with or without fish oil. If PN is required for more than a few days, this reduces the incidence of liver disease, and the use of toralidine line locks to reduce catheter-related sepsis in children on long-term PN. The article is full of useful, evidence-based and practical guidance. The final article I'd like to cover relates to the development and implementation of a commissioned pathway for the identification and stratification of liver disease in the community. The need to detect liver disease early to allow intervention and potentially change the course of the disease is uncontroversial. In this issue, Chalmers and colleagues describe the development and implementation of the Nottingham Liver Disease Stratification Pathway. Patients were referred to the pathway with a raised AST-ALT ratio, harmful alcohol use, or the presence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. 
Intervention was by transient elastography to look at liver stiffness and brief lifestyle intervention. This was in primary care with advice on interpretation and referral guidance shown in the paper. 222 of 968 patients had raised transient elastography, with 57 having liver stiffness indicative of advanced chronic liver disease, some of whom would have been missed by standard referral criteria. The pathway proved feasible and effective, with the potential to improve early detection rates and stratify referrals for specialist input. This model could easily be adopted in other settings and there is an excellent accompanying commentary on the path to developing significant liver disease. I'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope the comment I've highlighted is of interest. Please refer to the journal website for the full content. Thanks for listening. Music.